0: everyone, and welcome to the latest Digital Foundry Direct Weekly. It's our weekly chat show where we talk about the latest gaming and technology news. Joining me this week, John Linneman.
1: Rich, how's it going, buddy? Good to have you here.
0: After uh, you took a week away to enjoy some other good stuff, so... Absolutely. I just couldn't stay away. And also, Alex Patalia.
2: Yeah, uh, surprise guest this week. I wasn't there last week because I also was away doing things, work things, and now I'm back. And we're good to go. The trio is back, guys.
0: I mean, this is, you know... Yes, the triumvirate. triumvirate. Exactly. Back, back together. <laughs> okay, well, let's begin. We're going to address a really interesting topic that cropped up overnight, which is basically um, almost like a tweet war between uh, Nintendo of Japan and Bloomberg. Uh, Bloomberg basically saying that there is a 4K switch in development and that development kits are out, verified with 11 sources... And um, remarkably, Nintendo of Japan just put out a series, or well, a couple of tweets, I think, basically saying that it's inaccurate and that there isn't a 4K Switch. John, what do you make of all of this? Well,
1: first of all, I think a lot of people see a denial like that from Nintendo and think, oh, it's not true. But, you know, you have to look very carefully at the language they use and the way they refer to the Switch. They They don't use a product name. And the fact is, is like, they need, to, they need to appease shareholders and their business partners first and foremost. They're launching new hardware. They're going to have to be cautious about this, right? So I don't think that that means anything as far as a denial is concerned. And if it was really truly false, I do think a site like Bloomberg would remove their article, uh, but they have not, right? It's still there. Uh, and, you know, we've, we've talked about rumors and stuff earlier this year, and you were always adamant that the Switch releasing this year would not be an enhanced model outside of maybe a different screen or screen controller. You were exactly right. Uh, but there are plenty of other rumors out there, and I think it's pretty clear that there is going to be something in the works. It's just a matter of when we'll see it and in what form, right?
0: I absolutely agree. And um, although I did say that there wouldn't be a next-generation Switch this year, I think it is pretty clear at this point that there is going to be a next generation switch. Of course, there's going to be. Um, And um, I also, um, uh, with Bloomberg in saying that um, uh, development kits are out there, I think that is self evident at this point. Um, But I just think maybe the initial reporting was muddied by uh, the concept that the two devices were passed off as one, if you like. It was basically described as a new switch model with an OLED screen that would also have a 4K output, which it doesn't. But this new model does, and I believe that the dev kits do exist. Um, So it's basically just a bit of confusion there, I think. But I do think what is absolutely remarkable is the concept of um, a massive company like Nintendo essentially calling out a specific outlet. And I think the reason is that Bloomberg is so widely read by investors. So they kind of feel they have to put the record straight although I don't think they have put the record straight because you know fundamentally while the initial reporting may have been confused we kind of know that there is going to be a next generation console and we kind of know that the development kits are out there and it kind of takes away credibility from Nintendo almost to put those tweets out and usually typically it is a case of no comment right
1: yeah, but Rich, you know, they've done this before. Like, I think it was with the DS Lite and maybe another platform where they essentially denied it completely just in this way. And then like two weeks later, something it was revealed. So, you know, you really can't read anything into these denials, right? Like, it's just, it's business, right? <laughs> yeah. What's your take on this, Alex?
2: I'm actually curious about the release date because with the current um, semiconductor uh, shortages for, and the Bloomberg article, uh, Points this out really well too, talking about uh, talking with like PCB and other suppliers for Nintendo products off the record, uh, describing that essentially ev- all the semiconductor industry is already booked and overstrained for supply for years to come, almost essentially. So it is a bit it, it, the big question mark is essentially when will this actually be coming out? Because It almost feels unrealistic that it would be next year at this point due to this semiconductor shortage. And they, unless they somehow managed in this time to secure, um, you know, a contract to produce millions of units for the first year. Otherwise, it's going to be a paper launch, you know. So I'm curious about when it'll actually launch. I definitely think it exists. I definitely think those development kits out there. I found the tweet uh, (laughs) from Nintendo, uh, I don't know, a bit strange because it's pretty obvious
0: that this thing exists at this point. I mean, there has been the possibility raised that there was a 4K switch coming out and that it's been cancelled. And I guess there is maybe an outside chance that that specific model might have been uh, uh, sort of canned. I mean, if we go back into the past, there was actually an original Nintendo Tegra version of the 3DS. Development kits were made. It never happened. They went with a different solution for the silicon there. But, you know, that was an example of a development kit that did actually get out there. But in this case, the sheer costs involved in creating multiple in-development consoles, along with the fact that um, fundamentally, I really do think they need to continue the the switch lineage. It needs to be an NVIDIA-based Console, in my opinion, I just don't really see the latitude for that particular scenario happening. In terms of what you were saying about the uh, the semiconductor stuff, uh, there, Alex, uh, I'm inclined to agree, but I would also suspect that um, Nintendo would have got stuff booked years in advance. They're probably part of those of that ordering process. And obviously, um, we are seeing gradually that uh, more PS5s and Series Xs are, are getting out there. So I do think the the shortage may well be um, coming to an end at some point. So I do think there is probably latitude for them getting a console out there. But uh, I don't know. It's just this kind of unseemly... <laughs> a bun fight between uh, Bloomberg and Nintendo that I'm finding quite fascinating at this point. Okay, so moving on to the next topic then. Quite a lot happening with uh, Xbox Series consoles in terms of new features. Uh, Pretty welcome stuff, I think. And um, a couple of topics we want to talk about, the new 4K dash for the Series X. But first of all, Dolby Vision is now supported on Xbox Series consoles. And apparently uh, 100 games are supported. Now, you've looked at this, right, John?
1: Yes, that's right. I have taken a look at this. I was part of the preview program as well, so it has been available for a while. Um, But I did spend more time with it yesterday, specifically testing games like Gears 5, which is on the list as far as supported games are concerned. Um, So first of all, I am using an LG CX OLED, or C10, I guess you could say, uh, which does not yet have the Dolby Vision 120Hz mode support, though that has been in the engineering firmware since the summer. So I do believe it will arrive, so I can only test it at 60 hertz for now. But the results are really interesting, and I'm curious. I, I need to look more into how Dolby Vision actually works on the Xbox because there is there does seem to be two types. There's like display led and player led Dolby Vision, and there is a difference in terms of the end result. Um, so, and I've I've often wondered if this is the reason why it does not play Dolby Vision UHD Blu-ray discs actually. Uh, but as far as games are concerned, so the main thing I notice is that this seems to impact detail in highlights. Essentially, you have bright highlights, and this is what makes HDR presentation sort of pop. Um, and the issue with regular HDR10 is that the metadata is not static, and, you know, it has less of a relation connection to the TV or the display itself. Um, and there can be some clipping that occurs, especially in those brighter tones. And obviously, traditionally, you would want to calibrate the game or your console and the TV to sort of rein that in, so to speak. Like, for instance, uh, you know, a game, you can sort of set the maximum luminance for HDR. And if you set it too high, you end up basically clipping, right? So you kind of want to match your display. Dolby Vision matches closer to the display in that sense. So what I've basically noticed then is that Dolby Vision games, so far at least, appear slightly less bright overall than just using HDR10, but you gain more detail in uh, highlight regions. Um, And that's kind of the main thing. Now, again, we kind of have to wait to see where this goes from here and see how different it is. But fundamentally, it's very, very similar. Um, And I think anybody that's really been seeing differences, it probably comes down to how their displays are calibrated because the Dolby Vision mode is different than the HDR mode. They both have independent settings, and uh, there are differences in how you want to set up your TV based on what you're doing with uh, the HDR output. Um, So, you know, it's, it's certainly not a game changer or anything, but it's a really interesting addition. And I actually think this could help a lot with displays that are perhaps... Um, slightly less capable, maybe, although I don't know how many lower end or mid tier displays even support Dolby vision. So <laughs> mm. that's a tricky one. Yeah.
0: Well, I'm looking at a uh, Microsoft summary here it says, uh, gaming in Dolby vision Uh, launches today on Xbox Series XS. More than 100 next-gen HDR titles optimized for Series XS are available now or coming soon. But then it says, in addition, thousands of classic HDR and auto-HDR games will benefit from improved picture quality through new Dolby Vision enhancement on Xbox Series XS. So on the first point, it seems to be suggesting that content is being authored for Dolby Vision, which... um, is interesting but on the second point it sounds as though we have um almost like i don't know interpolation how does
1: this work the main thing i've noticed is that when you enable dolby vision on the xbox in the settings menu uh, any game that supports hdr seems to output in dolby vision so it doesn't necessarily require a native implementation to work um and i have tested some games that do not seem to have native dolby vision support and they do They kind of still look similar to what I just described, where you get a little bit more highlight detail, perhaps. uh, But the overall average picture level is slightly reduced, at least by my eye. Because um, there's more than just Dolby Vision at state. There's also the option to essentially, I guess, master the game, you might call it, where for HGIG, which is another standard for HDR that they kind of use. It's not, not quite the same thing, but it's, it's a tone mapping thing. Um, and games that when using that correctly, uh, then it actually abides by the system level settings of the Xbox, which are like configured nicely for the screen. And you can get some really nice looking, accurate results from that. Um, so, that That's all to say is that the, the situation on HDR is still rather complex. You have a lot of options at your disposal and how how it looks is going to depend both upon your TV and how each of the settings have been calibrated as well as obviously which settings you select. Um, like for instance, if you're using HDR10 on the LG OLEDs, you can set automatic tone mapping, which I don't necessarily recommend, but it has its uses. Like, if you want to use black frame insertion, if you're turning that on, it actually boosts the overall brightness even further, which is great for that. Uh, also, it just provides a super bright image uh, if that's what you're looking for, uh, versus one that's perhaps more correct where you have really bright highlights and darker shadows. So, it's it's just an ability to sort of adjust the picture to your liking, where Dolby Vision is very um, defined, if you will. So, there's less room to manipulate anything there. Uh, but probably more accurate. So I'm just happy to see that Xbox is supporting these types of technologies. And I think specifically Xbox is driving stuff like this. It's driving the HDR formats. It's driving VRR, uh, and even stuff like, you know, it's been doing it for a while, but Dolby Atmos support, for instance, like I sure wish you could, you could get that on PS5 as well, because, uh, you know, if you have a, an Atmos setup, it adds a lot to the experience. Um, so it's, it's really nice to see all of this stuff there. So I do recommend at least everybody give it a try if their display supports Dolby Vision, especially if you're using an LG OLED or equivalent with that support. Uh, but you might actually find yourself preferring, uh, HDR, HDR 10 specifically.
0: <laughs> And you can, of course, turn it off and go back to the standard.
1: So <laughs> you can do both. It's no problem. It allows you to choose. So it's all good. good. Absolutely. Okay. Good. good
0: stuff. Well, the other thing that's kind of cropped up, um, it's also in the preview builds at the moment, should be rolling out to everybody, uh, but the Xbox now has a higher resolution dashboard if you have a Series X. And um, there was some kind of almost non-committal. Um, kind of language as to what kind of resolution you were getting. So we did actually uh, download the preview, take a look at it. Got some screenshots and video here. Um, this is a 1080p video, so maybe if we run parts of the video stream, <laughs> zoomed in at 100%, you can see what's going on. Uh, but Alex, you took a look at some of the shots here. What, what do you reckon about this new dashboard? Is it a higher resolution? What is it doing?
2: Yeah, um, I think based on what I saw, it looked like the text was uh, resolving into the 4K pixel grid, which is different than it was before, where it would be 1080p text upscaled. Um, so, uh, the and the, the rest of the image though, like for example, the symbols uh, for like the Microsoft Store, as well as I would say the background images in the little tiles themselves, uh, seemed to not look like native 4K to me. Um, and I think this makes sense though, like um, because, you know, uh, having text render, which is, you know, text is usually done by a vector graphics of some sort. Uh, having text render at a higher resolution doesn't take up, necessarily, a lot more uh, video memory. Uh, increasing the size of all these images that need to be loaded and put into memory, such as, you know, these, these symbols and these icons and whatnot, which are not vector graphics, well, that would take up more memory. So, this seems like a good compromise in that way, where text can be higher res and look clearer, but it's not wasting video memory.
1: You might be completely right about this. And in fact, there's a good chance you are. Um, But I wouldn't draw any conclusions just yet based on the experience we had with PS4 Pro, because when that launched in late 2016, it also had a 4K dashboard right from the start, right? But uh, game developers actually had to update the artwork for the different images, right? So initially, all of the images, just like you see on the Microsoft side, were still 1080p. So they were blurry, low res. But over time, and as new games released, you know, games started to receive updates. I believe uh, that would basically raise the resolution of the core artwork, and it looked better in time. So there is still room for that to happen here. I think we just don't know yet because it hasn't been done.
0: It does sound likely, though, right? That you, you know, basically they've got a 4K dashboard now, so it is time to start rolling out 4K material uh, for all elements of the dashboard. But if you think about how old um the infrastructure will be for legacy titles you know um the assets specifically i suspect you're right i don't think developers are going to go back and redo all of their artwork to to be a higher resolution but going forward if they are um, either supplying higher resolution assets or lower and higher resolution assets then i think it's going to make a big difference but yeah i i I took a look at the new dashboard and um yeah it is better it is clearly a higher resolution it you know there was some confusion as to whether it is actually a 4k dash when the uh, feature was first announced but you know the fundamentals are there right you know it does seem to be a 4k dash it's just that all of the assets aren't fully conformed to the new standard yet but fingers crossed over time it it will be resolved but it's definitely a step in the right direction uh, because it always felt a bit odd um starting with xbox one x that you had this 4k console but you know you didn't get um, a 4k experience when you booted the machine and when you interacted with the system it didn't kind of seem right and then I remember John when we were in um, uh, at Microsoft last year, and Series X still had the 1080p dash, and we were kind of mm, okay. And you know, the the um, explanation given at the time was that they wanted to give more memory to titles, which I think is perfectly valid. Uh, but it looks as though they've done this without reducing the system um, software overhead uh, on the console, which is just awesome. But I guess, you know, just wait and see. But certainly in the short term, I think there's a big improvement to it. So, um, yeah, good stuff, Microsoft. Okay, let's move on to the next topic. And this is actually really interesting, uh, especially since Digital Foundry's uh, parent company runs events. Um, Basically, the Tokyo Game Show is uh, now happening and you can visit in virtual reality. And apparently it's really, really good. And uh, John's gonna tell us all about this.
1: Yeah, so this was really interesting. Uh, it's it's super neat to see. The this the idea here is that, you know, obviously with the pandemic, you know, trade shows haven't been happening so much. They've been attempting to move everything online. And to be honest, um, it hasn't always worked out that well, right, like browsing around a website just doesn't have that same impact. Uh, so I was really interested to see what they were attempting here at TGS. And, actually they have a full application you can download they also have it available for oculus quest platforms but you basically pop on the headset and you're dropped into this like weird like circular floating fortress thing over the ocean uh and you're given full reign to explore around and check out all the different booths for the company so it doesn't mimic the actual like mesa right it's more they they go further with it So for instance, you go into the Capcom booth and it's all like this giant tree fortress and you can walk around up the stairs and cross bridges and there's huge like monster hunter creatures like everywhere. But then there's like floating trailers, like just you can reach up and grab like a display down and like play the trailers and all that. And there's like images and and things to collect in there and find. And so you're basically going through all these different areas and sort of experiencing the vision of whatever it is each publisher wanted to include. Including stuff like there's a VR game in there, which uh, takes place in, a, in high school. So, you know, you kind of <laughs> can guess what it's about. But uh, they actually, oh, like, no. they included the full classroom set from the game with one of the characters in there as well. So you can like, walk into the set of what's going to be in the game. You know, but it's kind of look around. And uh, that's really interesting to see. <laughs> that's, so that's it's awesome. just, they also had like museums pieces. Like they had all over the place they had like posters from all the old tgss that you could find and like zoom in and look at them closely they had like uh, famitsu magazines they had a whole section for famitsu and they had stuff there and like old magazine issues you could look at um and there's even just like a little meta game attached to it like finding stuff and getting little quests from there as well and you know Obviously, you're still just ultimately looking at trailers and media and stuff, but it gives you this really cool feeling of being in a very large space. And when you first walk in there and there's a gigantic, like, uh, 100-foot Chocobo statue or in Sonic the Hedgehog, you're as big as his shoe. Uh, it's it's interesting. It's weird.
2: Is this, uh, is this a downloadable client or is it one it is. in your browser? Oh, it is? Okay. So well, it seems like there might
1: be a browser option, but in my case, I actually downloaded the full client. And you run it, and then it installs some data, and then you uh, go from there, and you just hop on in and play. Does it be Unity, uh, Unreal? It was made in Unity. so Ah, okay. And um, I guess the question is, is I don't, I think TGS is just starting or just about to start, or I I don't know exactly by the time we're recording this, but the only thing I'm wondering is whether they'll allow, like, essentially multiplayer, like, other people in there and there wasn't anybody else in there, but there's lots of weird little, like, bots and things floating around and, like, that you can talk to and get info info from. And they even have a, a live theater that you can go into with this huge screen and just, like, all these weird little floating robots in the audience that you can mingle around and watch trailers and demonstrations of stuff. So, and I walked in there, and I'm like, man, if they, like, showed, like, press conferences for, like, the big the big three or something— In a virtual theater like that as like an optional thing, that would be really cool, right? And it just, you know, they were very it's very clear in there as well. They're saying, you know, there's messages around like this is our first attempt at this. Leave feedback in this area of the virtual world. Let us know what you think. Like it's still very early. You can tell they're experimenting with the concept of doing a trade show thing in VR, but man it's uh i I like the concept a lot and this is the first time i've seen an attempt at doing some sort of trade show related thing at home that actually felt like interesting enough to look at i mean you remember the e3 website yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's a it's a it's a long way from that
0: but this works on multiple platforms right so if you've got a quest or if you've got like a a rift you should be good to go or that or valve index
1: that's right yeah and actually I only tried one. They actually have game float and game float sky. And the idea is that, so it looks like it's two separate arena. I didn't try game float sky and I'm not sure what that does. I just tried game float, but yeah, that when you load that up or like click on it on the website, you're actually given the option to, you can do Oculus quest or quest two, which has one link. It has the Oculus rift HTC vive on another. And then it just says PC Mac. No. So we got the So how to play it on there. Yeah, I mean, they they seem to have really tried to make this accessible to as many people as possible. And if you look at the requirements, even, it's like a Core i5-8250U and an Intel UHD Graphics 620. Okay, so it's like very (laughs) much. I mean, it has to run on the Quest, right? So it's pretty low spec, but it's cool. It's effective. And it's just a taste, and somehow this this feels like you know you're the vision of old Japan or something, or it's like the future is now kind of feeling, you know. So, you know, not necessarily a game changer yet, but the potential for something really awesome is here. And I do recommend anyone that has a VR headset
0: just go walk around and enjoy because it's it's kind of fun to see. Yeah, we're in a weird situation with shows, right? Because um, on the one hand, the pandemic has shown just how digital everything already is, right? I mean, E3 basically is a digital event and has been for years, but it did have that physical component where we could go and actually play games and report about them, get hands-on, speak to game makers, executives and whatnot. So that had value. Um, But we haven't been able to do that for a couple of years. I think... um, PAX West happened recently, and it was a very different event to what we've seen previously. And um, I still don't think that virtual events can kind of do the job of, you know, the the networking side of things and crucially the hands-on things. And um, yeah, obviously, because our company has a lot to do with events, I've been thinking a lot about this. And fundamentally, um, you know, stuff like EGX and PAX is all about the hands-on experience. And I still think that we haven't been able to properly replicate the hands-on component of these shows. And I still think, you know, cloud streaming is probably the way forward there. You know, get some client software uh, into the cloud, stream it to users, actually get some hands-on time. I think people accept the limitations of the cloud at this point. Some people don't even notice them, but that is maybe, you know, as well as this kind of uh, VR interface with a virtual event, actually bringing that hands-on component and doing it on a mass scale i think is probably the next step forward i'm surprised we haven't seen it stadia could do it although you'd have to port your software to stadia geforce now they could do it i actually think
1: this is feasible because they have the interface already to display video within this virtual tgs right so they just take it one step further and implement sort of a streaming solution sort of it layer into that so you walk up to one of these panels and you're basically
0: playing a streamed demo i mean if you think about xcloud that's um a brilliant way to uh to actually evangelize the system there you know if you could actually get hands-on time with a game that isn't out yet that you're genuinely excited about and the streaming holds up it's a great de- way to demo that particular technology the extra
1: element about using vr plus streaming is that if you do if you're already in vr image quality is slightly reduced right because You're up close to a screen, you know, your limited number of pixels that would essentially hide most of the artifacts that you would encounter with a streaming video. And, you know, it would give you a perhaps a better impression, so to speak. Uh, And just having like, you know, if you just had like an Xbox pad on your table, you in VR, you just set down the hand controllers and pick up the controller and you're playing the game like that. I think it would actually work really well Mm, in faking. Alex, any thoughts
2: on this? I'm liking this idea. I've always wanted uh, essentially from E3 where they just show off a a vertical slice demo and they say, you can play it right now in your browser, you know, like immediately after the show. Cause you know, there's been surprise demo drops before after shows, uh, which are always uh, really nice to see. But uh, if they're a little bit worried about getting that content out there in a more controlled form then streaming is a really easy way to do it, I'd say. Um, So I'd like to see more of
0: that if they could. Okay, well, let's move on to the next topic. And this one's right down your alley, Alex. Woo! NVIDIA uh, basically made official DLAA, which is essentially an anti-aliasing form of DLSS. Um, why don't you take us through it? I think the question is, doesn't DLSS do anti-aliasing already? What's the difference? Essentially, the difference between DLAA and DLSS
2: is that the resolution uh, of the of the internal image uh, before DL, any deep learning, anything is being done to it is the same resolution as the output here. So if you want to play at four K, uh, the internal resolution is four K, the output resolution is four K, and the DL, you know, algorithm, instead of trying to find uh, the pixels from previous frames to reproject at a higher resolution into the current frame, it's using that same idea and technology of using previous frames to anti-alias the current image. Uh, which is essentially what the reconstruction of DLSS is already doing because it's using sub-pixel locations just from previous frames. It's actually already combining reconstruction and anti-aliasing at the exact same time. Um, The idea for this is not new. It was initially put forward as an idea uh, when Turing architecture was announced as DLSS 2X, and that was using the 1.0 version of DLSS, and that would have been doing this exact same thing, native resolution and using the deep learning part of this to do anti-aliasing. That never really came into fruition. It kind of, I think it was just a slide, and the reaction of the press and otherwise to DLSS made them go back to their drawing board, and that never really came out. Uh, with DLSS 2.0, this technically has always been viable. It's always been a thing you could do. And you could, you know, in some titles using Unreal Engine 4, I've tried it before in the past uh, with um, Ghost Runner uh, uh, using Unreal Engine Unlocker back in the day with its demo version. So whatever version of Unreal Engine that was at that time, and whatever DLSS integration that was at the time, uh, you could force it to actually be native res internally because they had a hidden mode back then, and you could tell very easily it was native res internally because the the performance uh, was definitely native res with ray tracing. Um, uh, back then, it looked really, really good, and uh, uh, DLSS is uh, or this deep learning anti-aliasing is already a form of temporal anti-aliasing, which all games use nowadays. But since it is having a machine controlling these past this past history of pixels, uh, instead of humans uh, trying to you know tune it by scene, Uh, And then having that information essentially apply to the whole game. The machine's constantly learning and doing this in real time. So it can do it a lot better. And that means, usually in general, this does not apply to all cases, of course. But I've noticed, especially in comparison to something like in control, there's like less ghosting on just like small wavering objects, less ghosting on transparencies by far. Um, and uh, subpixel information can be done quite a bit better, because it's just better at integrating things uh, than a hand-tuned algorithm is. And that's, from what I've seen so far, this was added into the Elder Scrolls Online. Uh, from what I've seen so far, uh, the sharpness is actually, in some instances, slightly less than TAA. But it is less, um, how do you say, less aliased? (laughs) It is, it is less, uh, so when the picture moves, it has a lot less, you know, fizzle and fuzzle and all these different things. Uh, so it is doing essentially the job of anti-aliasing much better uh, in that aspect. Um, but DLSS is a work in progress algorithm. They recently just, uh, posted about on Twitter. They kind of opened up their, research so that they're going to be posting uh, work-in-progress versions of DLSS. DLLs you can download and grab for yourself as a gamer or as a developer and try them out. That'll have different image characteristics and prover- uh, properties, which is cool. So at right now, DLAA first integration. I've seen only uh, videos and screenshots of this done by other um, websites and other uh, reviewers. So I haven't touched it myself yet, but based upon what I've seen already in Runner before, it's great. I hope to see... This in the future added to more games uh, as a part of DLSS. It'll be called. I hope it's called something like pristine quality or something like that,
0: because this allows. Ultra quality was the the term that was being mooted. Yeah,
2: that was the proposed name or whatever. uh, But can can I make a different
1: proposition here? I say call it Battali quality. (laughs) Yeah, whatever. (laughs) Then you know you're getting the best. (laughs) You're
2: getting the best, Um, and I would like that because right now in the currently released DLSS games. Um, You know, eventually, at some point in time, we're going to be able to run these games at, like, native, you know, resolutions and things like that. Uh, And I still want what DLSS does for edge quality in comparison to normal TAA, actually. Uh, So this is a future-proofing thing, and I want that, and I hope those in the audience uh, can push NVIDIA to make it so that all DLSS releases also include
0: DLAA. Because this is really interesting, right, Alex? Because um, I'm not sure people are fully aware of the cost of DLSS, and basically the cost is flat, but the flatness depends on the resolution, yeah,
2: right? Yeah, and the GPU, of so, course, too.
0: Uh, yeah, and the GPU, of course. So you know, I think you mentioned the other day that we're reaching the point now where you know, 4K um, DLSS on a 3090 doesn't actually have that much cost because it's just got so much tensor power within there. And that's only going to increase over time,
2: right? There's an interesting case, too, where it could technically, DLSS over time, could become less expensive than TAAU algorithms at the same at the same resolution. I think this already happens. People have tested it out in Unreal Engine 5, even. I think the Unreal Engine 5 upscaler is technically more expensive on certain GPUs than DLSS.
0: OK, well, let's move on to our uh, DF content discussion section. Some interesting topics have, em- have emerged. And um, I think one of the more interesting but also disappointing ones was um, the Act phaser Renaissance uh, kind of reimagining that was released recently where uh, it's kind of weird that a game that runs at 60 frames per second is only updating its camera at 50 frames per second, which is producing entirely um, sort of... Well, how can I say it? It's just shouldn't be there, but judder it is there. Um, John, you've been looking into this. So you've got some interesting findings to share. Yeah, that's right. So this has this plagues ActRaiser. It plagues that recent
1: Alex Kidd remake and several other 2D platform-based Unity games that I've played before. And it always drove me nuts. Uh, so I actually started talking with um, a friend of the show, Dean Rands, who has done some Unity work as well, and we kind of think we have what's going on here, essentially. So he put together this little demo thing, which we can show here. And uh, the idea essentially is that, well, by default, the fixed time step value set by Unity is a value of 0.02, which just happens to perfectly align with um, 50 Hertz or 50 frames per second, right? So anything that uses this fixed update call or this, this value is impacted by this. Uh, what we think is happening actually is that for these 2D games especially, they're essentially using a rigid body 2D element, which is one of the options you can do for a 2D game, and then essentially attaching the camera directly to that object. Which, so you'll notice like with Act Razor, it's just following the character along, but at the points where the camera breaks free and like zooms to show something else in the 2D mode, it looks perfectly smooth, right? Because it's no longer defined by the motion of that rigid body object. So by default, when the camera is attached to that rigid body, it updates at the same rate as the fixed step there, right? So what seems to be this fix here, at least for this kind of thing, is that if you change that fixed time step value from uh, 0.02, over to like say 0.01666667 or something like that, right? Uh, Then it updates at 60 frames per second. Now it's still a fixed update. So I would still argue that attaching your camera in this way, isn't necessarily optimal in this era of, you know, multi refresh rate monitors and such. But either way, the game's clearly targeting 60 FPS. By doing this, it essentially allows the character to, or the screen to scroll at a smooth 60 FPS on a 60 Hertz display. Uh, So by doing either, the default value looks like this with the judder. Then if you switch it over to uh, this other value here, then it updates at a perfectly smooth 60 frames per second and i do feel that this behavior of this default value perfectly matches up the exact issue the exact issue that we're seeing in ActRaiser and alex kid and other similar games at least the behavior is exactly the same now the caveat of course is that by changing the fixed time step technically you know that dictates like the physics calculations right so if you're on a lower power platform like the switch there is obviously a small performance penalty there by updating the physics at a higher rate. But, you know, in default, ActRaiser, for instance, doesn't even hit 60 FPS anyway <laughs> on the Switch. Uh, and this would be beneficial for every other version, basically. So mm-hmm. I think that's what's happened. Again, this is just a guess. We can't say for sure. We haven't actually seen these projects. But based on the behavior and the nature of the games that suffer from this, I'm fairly positive that these games are using those rigid body 2d elements with the camera attached to that element and they're using the default fixed time step. And that's why we're getting the camera judder. And if they just changed the default to match for 60 Hertz, wouldn't solve every problem for everybody, but it would make the default game experience dramatically better for most people. So yeah, that's, that's kind of the idea. Now, again, um, hopefully, uh, this is something that can be looked into further, Um, I'd like to, you know, chat with somebody at unity as well about this. Uh, I think, you know, so there is potential here, but, um, I think that's what's happening.
0: (laughs) Well, if that is the case, then if I was somebody at unity, I would be changing that default value. Fundamentally, (laughs) that's the thing, right? Just change the default value. Um, and at least then the chances of, of this happening again would be minimal, but you know, if if I guess we just need confirmation that this is actually the case on those specific projects, and um... that's the caveat that I keep stressing here is like this is just
1: our our guess, basically, right? We haven't seen the projects, but the behavior to me makes me think that that might be it. So let's let's see what happens, and let's hope for a solution, <laughs> because uh, if it's really that simple, uh, then it feels like it's something that could absolutely be patched. Thinking about this uh, issue, the Unity issue here and the Razor
2: issue, we're seeing this more and more in games, actually, recently. We saw it recently in Deathloop as well too with the camera with the mouse, where it still happens at non-60 FPS frame rates, by the way, as of the latest patch, where it like pauses or hyper-accelerates the screen because whatever is going on with the mouse calculations and the screen movements, uh, it's not lining up with 60, much like Razor is here. And makes the game look stutterier than it actually is. The frame rate is perfect. And recently, I just talked with Rich about this, but it's also happening in Halo Infinite uh, in the, in the... um uh, Yeah, well, I think it's actually happening on all uh, consoles, actually. I think Rich looked through his footage and saw it in his 120 FPS footage as well on Xbox Series X, so... There, it's slightly different, but, you know, it, it's really important that animation rate lines up with refresh rate for at least things really close to the screen. Further into the distance, it's less important, and games have been doing that for ages, you know, reducing the update rate on things in the distance. But if there's something's right in front of your screen, like the main character, the camera, it needs to be lined up with the refresh rate,
1: always,
0: yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, let's move on to our next topic. And um, this, we haven't published it yet, but I suspect it's going to prove quite controversial. It's the Medium on PlayStation 5. Now, it launched with no raid-tracing support, so we didn't look at it because um, I guess an issue we have with content is that it sits on the internet forever. And um, if it just means waiting a week to produce the verdict uh, for a game that is more fully finished, we should probably do that. Um, But fundamentally, the game was patched does have ray tracing now on PlayStation 5, but the presentation is very, very different in some respects compared to the existing Series X implementation. And it's kind of curious, to say the least, why the developer made those changes. And it opens up a series of topics for debate. So why don't you clue us in, Alex?
2: Yeah. So basically, they updated the game to include ray tracing, but it. In- And that ray tracing that they included now in medium and the version that you can play right now is ray traced reflections. But if you compare back-to-back with the Xbox Series X version or just the PC version using similar settings to the Xbox Series X, you can see really quickly that they've also, for this version of the medium which they brought out on PlayStation 5, changed other things around. Uh, they've kind of reorganized the rendering load, as I'm going to call it. They uh, took out Ray Trace and Occlusion and are using SSAO. That seems like a downgrade, right? Um, they've reduced the resolution of reflections. That seems like a downgrade. And there's a couple of other things, too, that they seem to have stripped out or changed. Uh, and the end result is a product on PlayStation 5 where it is actually now, on average, I would say running better and um has a higher average output resolution and with the game's usage of temporal anti aliasing upsampling it looks a lot more 4k like and doesn't fizzle as often like when the camera moves and such um which is great the, the but this brings up this issue this kind of question that we could probably bring into the room here and we could ask the audience as well too are What would you rather prefer? Because now we have two different versions of the game. One that's lower res with more rendering features and less stable or one that has less rendering features and um, has more stable frame rate on average and also higher res. I don't know, how do you guys see this uh, for console games?
1: I think that's actually a very difficult question and it's something that's gonna vary from game to game and style to style, right? Um, And that's why I do think fundamentally this should be an option, which is something that we see very regularly these these days so it's really nothing new in that regard but you know um i think this is simply a question where the developer if they're not going to offer modes they need to look at what they're trying to do visually and try to figure out the best solution here because i mean that's what console optimization is really about right so you have limited resources you have to use those resources to produce the best looking image uh given the circumstances so it's interesting, though, to see that they essentially kind of seemingly changed their mind, if you will, about this, which that's that's what's unique about this situation, where they simply said, well, you know what, maybe we're going to push for a higher resolution and sacrifice some
0: other things instead. Yeah, I think, um, well, first of all, since this is the content discussion part of the show, it's kind of like a bit of a goldmine in terms of content, because usually there isn't really much in the way of differences between Xbox Series X and PlayStation 5. I mean, that is kind of like, uh, I mean, obviously, in terms of the spec differentials, you know, it suggests that one console is more powerful than the other. But in terms of actual real-life applications of games, it's been a lot more closer than one might have imagined. But what they're doing here is to essentially change their priorities, right? They've um, definitely pared back precision of certain effects. But on the flip side, you are getting an increase in resolution. And I agree with you, Alex. When you're using Unreal Engine 4's temporal upscaler uh, and you reach a certain resolution threshold, you talk about 1620p and 1728p, uh, then you are actually getting something that looks really good on a 4K screen, and that's somewhere where the Series X version didn't quite hit the target. Now, I think the question here, first of all, let us stress that doesn't seem to be about system capabilities as far as we know, right? It seems to be about a genuine uh, refresh of how the game is presented. And as you say in the content, Alex, in a lot of scenarios... It's very difficult to tell the difference, but I think um, I agree with you that the ambient occlusion on PS5 is uh, not quite as as robust as you'd, as you'd hope. But um, we come back to what you were talking about, John, which is essentially um, that this more quality-driven approach that we see on Series X is still there on Series X. Um, I fully believe that they could quite easily roll out the changes that are in the PlayStation 5 version to Series X and offer it as a resolution mode. You could have a resolution mode and a quality mode. And uh, in that case, it kind of, you know, restores parity if, if both versions have both modes, right? So I, I think that's probably the way forward. Um, I kind of think that we would probably end up using the, <laughs> the, the resolution mode because it does seem to provide a more consistent overall win, right?
2: Yeah, I'd say for a game like this on average, I, I just felt like the the Xbox Series X version playing it again now, and this version is slightly different than the one John played, by the way, so um, I felt like it was just switching resolution too often in a way that was a little bit more visible unlike on PlayStation 5 where it just felt like a much more consistent experience And uh, and the performance difference even though there's this, once again, this frame pacing issue there on the PlayStation 5 version, unfortunately, I felt like it still wasn't having those as many issues like when you load up um a new camera angle and it would drop the frame rate really rapidly uh which is you know obviously that makes sense if you're running two forms of <laughs> uh ray tracing on a console and targeting uh like multiple viewports and all these things like this game does so uh yeah i just want uh, another mode added to both versions of the game at this point actually
0: so another piece of uh, content that we put up last week and uh came out the blue really, but it really is quite fascinating, is that we do actually have our first example of a native 8K 60 frames per second game on the new wave of consoles. It's The Tourist by uh, Shinen Multimedia. And um, image quality is just as you'd expect from 8K absolutely pristine. Now, one thing to bear in mind here is that um, for whatever reason, although 8K is written on the box on the PlayStation 5, it doesn't support 8K screens. Not many people have an 8K screen. Uh, I think there's two debates to have here, which is basically, uh, can and should the consoles be targeting 8K if it is within the uh, the bounds of the project? And um, I guess you know, what do you think of the Tourist? I guess uh, you did the content, John. What do you think? Yeah, so I think
1: um, 8K is the kind of thing that is firmly in the the area of, say, 1080p, 60 on the PS3, if you will, uh, where it's it's something that is nice to see. And I think if a developer has a very specific visual target and they have the performance overhead for it, then sure, why not? And this they could do this on Xbox, PS5, whatever. Uh, and that's completely fine. We've already seen Xbox games doing the 6K, including the Xbox version of the Taurus, but also Ori and the Will of the Wisps. Um, so, but I really think it's important that 8K should not be something that games are specifically aiming for. I really don't think it's necessary in most cases where, especially with the imagery construction techniques we have and already the difficulty of just hitting native 4K and more demanding uh, rendering applications as is so it's you know it, it's really just a neat to see thing and it's very uh, to me it almost feels very demo scene if you will like this feels like the kind of thing that it, that the german demo scene would have been doing back in the day is like yeah we must push this to the next level kind of thing uh, we need more pixels uh, just because like no shipping game needs to do it but they've done it here and that's just cool. So I, it's neat to see. It's cool that it's actually possible at all, given how demanding 8K is, right? Um, and it just shows that, you know, these these guys at Shin'en are just technical wizards, I guess you could say. Like, they still roll all their own technology in-house and do all kinds of crazy stuff. And that just makes their games look different you know what I mean? Like they have a unique look to them. I mean, especially in this one where they went for the magic of voxel style uh, meshes (laughs) and uh, it's neat. But um, beyond that, of course, you know, as I said in the video, what, if you've had a chance to play it, you know, or not, I, I do recommend giving it a look because this game is just really, really cool. It's just an absolute joy to play. There's not really much else like it. It's almost hard to explain what it even is. It's just this mysterious exploration platform adventure game uh, with a really cool vibe and a cool visual look. And yeah, if you haven't played it yet and you want to play it uh, and you have a PlayStation console, give it a shot. Because beyond the 8K PS5 version, they do. Well, that version also has a 4K 120 mode if you want but then it's also available on PS4 and PS4
0: Pro not the 4K 120 mode no 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 definitely <laughs> not in fact definitely not. Uh, the
1: the the PlayStation 4 professional kind of hangs around the 1440 to 1512p range most of the time so oh yeah 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 it's uh, at 60 <laughs> by the way but the the key here though All is right. that every single version from the original Switch release up to this it just runs flawlessly. There's no hiccups. There's no loading, really. It's just everything is instantaneous. As I mentioned in the video, I love the fact that you click on the game on the dashboard. It literally dips to black for like less than a second. And then it's just the first time you play the game, it literally just fires up right on the first island. And you're just playing the game. Like there's not even like publisher logos. There's not even a main menu. It's just you, you click the button and like less than a second later, you're
0: playing the game. Yeah, I mean, I do have an 8K screen. I've had it for about nine months, so I do have some insight into uh, what 8K is all about. And uh, first of all, I would prefer to play the Tourist at 4K 120, even if there was a late native 8K mode, um, simply because the win the win you get from that extra fluidity trumps uh, the, the extra pixel count. Um, having played... 8K games on PC on this 8K display, um, it you you don't seem to get a win in terms of uh, you know enhanced detail, but you just seem to get really good anti-aliasing. Ironically, which is what you get with the Tourist in its 4K mode with anti-aliasing enabled, which kind of makes sense, right? <laughs> but um, the other thing which uh, stood out to me um, is that in a sort of typical living room scenario, you need a big screen. Uh, Already, I think that there's a strong case for being at 65 inches um, for a 4K screen in a living room environment versus 55. Um, It might not sound like much, but the the experience is definitely a lot better. And with 8K, I'm at 75 inches, and um, that's basically kind of like what I think the ground level should be for an 8K display in a living room environment. Um obviously the, view, the the viewing distances are going to change but just talking about my my experience there.
1: I got to know though what do you think about um LG's new 325-inch display that they revealed <laughs> not too long ago. I think the <laughs> um, I think the large I think that largest one it's 1.7 million dollars so very reasonable Yeah, price. I've got
0: I've got two pre-orders in. <laughs> <laughs> um, I sh- I, no, w- I would I would love I'd to love test to see it. it. <laughs> I would love to see it. I'd love to test it, and, but it wouldn't fit in my living room, that's true. I think, fundamentally, unless I moved into sort of
1: this huge environment. The one that's actually more interesting to me was the, uh, the ultra-wide one. They have a 32 by 9 one that's also gigantic. So it's basically like having two enormous 16 by 9 screens next to each other. But that's nice, actually. They call it the
0: ultra-stretch. The ultra-stretch? Oh, jeez. <laughs> I just think on a general level, people aren't driven towards 8K because there's no content really that really sort of um, that sells it. And traditionally, of course, it's gaming that has driven higher resolution displays, right? You know, Xbox 360, PS3 sort of took us into the 720p era. And, um, you know, 1080p with PS4, Xbox One, and then the enhanced consoles, you know, you got more... 4K content from your consoles at that point um, early on than you did in terms of transmissions and Blu-rays and stuff. So the fact that we aren't really seeing gaming taking point uh, for 8K to any meaningful degree kind of speaks for itself. Um, I am going to be curious though, because um, obviously when we are talking about the next generation of GPUs, I think even at the moment, you could get some quite nice results If you can run DLSS at 4K uh, with performance mode, if you run that at 8K, uh, upscaling from 4K, I think you'll get some nice results there. Um, The ultra performance mode, which tries for 8K from 1440p, it's kind of content dependent. It's uh, It's not a definite win there, but I'm kind of curious if we will just reach the horsepower threshold required in a generation or two to actually make 8K fully viable on new games. Um, But I just don't see it taking off at the moment for the reasons stated. 4K still kind of seems overkill. But that's just what I think. Okay, so let's move on. It's time for one of our favorite parts of the show, which is where we field questions from uh, our supporters on the Digital Foundry Supporter Programme. And uh, yes, of course, if you want to pose your own questions, get involved. Uh, Join the Supporter Programme. Uh, join our Discord, where we're regularly talking uh, with our supporters. It's also awesome environment. But officially, Q&A is here. And we're going to start off with a question from, actually two questions uh, from Lee Ashton. Let's tackle the first one first. And uh, here we go with this one. Considering some people prefer physical media, eyes on John. Um, why not release games on usb sticks they can be packaged in boxes all consoles have usb and i'm sure they could add some drm to prevent duplication john i mean isn't that kind of what nintendo's
1: done with their cartridge solution i mean it's effectively the same kind of idea as a usb stick just in a proprietary form i don't i you know it's not a terrible idea but i think anything like that would also take on a proprietary form and I'd actually be on board with that. But I think the problem now is just, um, component cost when you're manufacturing, like it's very cheap to make optical discs and currently you have to install it to a drive anyway. So the speed of that and everything, not a big deal. I think it's not something they're really looking at as much. Uh, now what I would like to see, but we won't see because of cost is say I know what John's gonna say that you know the xbox series x <laughs> yes. slash s that ssd the add-on ssd <sighs> that thing would be the best physical media card i could imagine just like my goodness uh how cool would that be that would be so satisfying to have games ship on something like that but uh you know obviously it would be much much smaller than the one you buy because it would only need to hold the game uh, and theoretically i've always wanted a system where you could like say uh, install patches directly onto the media, you know, like patch the card directly, though I'm sure there's security concerns there. But that's what I would like to see. But again, the, the cost of manufacturing is really high for that. So I don't think we ever would. Um, but so USBs kind of occupy that same space as an optical disc where it's not fast enough to play the games now, um, but it's still more expensive than doing a disc. And I think that's probably why
0: we're not going to see it. I mean, my question is, what's the point? Um, You know, do we want more expensive games? Uh, Because the the basic cost of of pressing a Blu-ray at this point is quite cheap. This sounds like a nightmare in terms of of costs. And if we actually think back to um, the cartridge era, I remember actually thinking about it there was um when I was on the official Sega magazine there was a point where Sega were going to put out Virtue Racing which had that um embedded th- yeah 3D uh, processing chip and the game was going to cost 100 pounds 100 pounds in like 90 what 90 was it 95 94 100 pounds for a game and um, that was specifically tied to their kind of currency conversion rates, but fundamentally the cost of making that cartridge and we're already reeling from higher prices on today's games, which you know we're being told is because of the additional development effort also
1: Rich, I want to interject and say we've already seen a negative effect of this on the switch where developers often opt for the absolute smallest cart size in order to save on manufacturing costs. And that has a detrimental effect. Sometimes it causes them to compress assets to an uncomfortably small uh, size in order to fit it on there, which has an impact on the quality there. Sometimes it becomes the game itself is over compressed to the point where it actually impacts performance. Cause you have to decompress everything to, to actually use it. I, I think Rayman was like that back in the day where it loaded slowly from the cart. Um, so, and you also have this like mandate from on high where, you know, the executives are like, well, you gotta, you gotta fit your game in this four gigabyte card. Sorry. And it's just, sometimes that's difficult to do. And the end result of that then is not, if you don't end up compressing it, then what we've seen instead is, oh, well, now you have to download something. I have a big banner that says that the game is not completely on the card. You actually have to
0: download stuff from the internet. So what's the point? There is a problem with physical media, especially when um, you you open it up and there's a download code in there. Alex, can you foresee a, a, an occasion where you would like to buy a game on a USB stick for your PC?
2: No, never. Uh, <laughs> I
0: lose the USB sticks all the
2: time, honestly.
0: That's another good point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, well, let's move on to Lee's second question, which again seems to be... Uh, Uh, focused on throwback technology, (laughs) and uh, it's addressed specifically to you, John. Uh, Why do you think there is no resurgence of boutique CRT manufacturers? Uh, You can buy vinyl turntables, cassette players, and CD players. I would imagine there would be a niche, but strong market, I don't think I disagree with that, for high-quality modern CRTs. The tech would surely be better nowadays.
1: Uh, I think fundamentally this doesn't work for two reasons. First of all, the manufacturing process, it's very, very difficult in terms of one, you need a special line constructed to support this. That's big money, right? You can't just do this small time as far as I can see. Uh, The actual knowledge for building a cathode ray tube is also kind of gone by the wayside. And I just don't think that there's interest from anyone to invest money in building a factory, training people, getting all those very specific processes in place again to make it. Uh, and there might still be someone in China, I think, that makes them. I'm not 100% sure, but it's it's very rare now. Those, those factories basically do not exist anymore. And that's much, much more expensive to do than like a vinyl turntable, right? It's It's a completely different world. But beyond that, there's also the environmental concerns. I mean, I love CRTs, but the nature of building CRTs and what they represent, it's it's not exactly good for the planet. It's not green enough to actually work in today's climate. So I don't think that's a viable solution on that front either. Where I would like to see things change, though, is I want to see more research in being put poured into understanding and duplicating what it is that CRTs do well right? We've already seen the motion side. It's being addressed and its progress is being made with things like black frame insertion and ultra low motion blur and those technologies. It's not a hundred percent there, but it's getting there. It's pretty good. But then there's things like uh, the, you could say variable resolution support. I mean, technically a CRT has sort of a either a shadow mask or a slot mask or something that sort of defines the maximum res, but due to the electron beam scanning a phosphor screen nature of a CRT, you can display lower resolutions without really degrading the quality. It eliminates that need for scaling, which means, you know, This is something I've wanted for a long time. There's all this effort being poured into like DLSS and all these other techniques and machine learning. And fundamentally, why are they doing it? It's to make up for a limitation of fixed pixel displays, in my opinion. It's because of that it's because when you're not at the same resolution as a fixed pixel display, you have to scale it up and scale introduces blur. So they're finding ways to try to get it up there to match the pixel grid as best as they can using all these techniques to make it look good. Uh, and all this effort's being poured there, but what about the display itself? That's just, I don't know. That's, that has been a pet peeve of mine for a long time. Everything seems to be focused. on this fixed pixel matrix uh, for screens. And I guess now that we're getting to these really high pixel counts, especially when you look at like 8K, it starts to matter less. But I don't know. I'm just curious to know what else is possible from that front. You
0: know what I mean? Okay, um, well, let's move on to the next question. Neon 5, Neon V. Apologies if I have mispronounced your hacker alias. Uh, It seems that... It seems like the mo- the modern, sorry, let me start again. It seems like the random read I/O requirements for current games like Ratchet and Clank is not that big, under one hundred ninety thousand for the Western Digital SN seven hundred fifty SE, whereas the internal SSD in PS five in theory should be able to do over one million. 4K IOPS. So my question is, what do you see as potential use cases for future games to utilize that many random read IOPS? Considering real-time fast traversal, e.g. portals in Ratchet & Clank, is already possible using alternative techniques using much slower hardware. Uh, So I guess this kind of stems from all of the research that's been done with very slow SSDs or relatively slow SSDs, I should say, on the PlayStation 5, where Ratchet & Clank, uh, which is uh, considered to be one of the most storage-heavy games, is still running just fine. There are ways and means uh, which our supporters have been looking at to actually reduce SSD bandwidth still further, and uh, the game still seems playable. Um, But what do you... I mean, I guess... The fundamental thing, Alex, is that we've been talking about bandwidth on um, uh, these SSDs as kind of like the defining metric of performance, when there's a lot more to an SSD than it's sequential read alone.
2: Yeah, I mean, well, that's something we learned really quickly back in the day um, when SSDs came first out, and you could just see the Windows experience was uh, very dramatically different because you would click on the Start menu and there would be no loading time. (laughs) You know, that was, you know, uh, that would be something that would happen when you'd have an SSD because of this uh, random read-write 4K uh, uh, being a lot higher on SSDs. and. you know, a, a, a reasonable amount higher on NVMe's as well. Um, here, I, I think when we start talking about the the use case for this, there actually hasn't been that much in games so far. Uh, there was good testing back in the day by Gamers Nexus uh, regarding this. Uh, examining, you can profile an SSD. Pretty easily to see the size of the uh, of the reads uh, that are going on during the game, and the the random uh, the random small four K ones were happening mainly during level load, actually. So that's when they would come up, but not during the gameplay. Uh, and I think uh, one of the reasons for this is because that is not latency sensitive uh, when you're loading a, a level up, um, exactly. And so. You have to still be worried about this because even the really nice, fast SSD on the PS5 is still a good deal of milliseconds away from a real-time frame rate. So they can only utilize that to a certain degree. That's why they, they stream over these longer, larger files over a, a longer period of time. And that's good. It's, uh, you know, it's used really well in Ratchet and Clank. Um, but I think when we start talking about utilizing this 1 million 4K IOPS, I think it's less practical for the current way games are designed, and I can't—I honestly can't think of the use case up the top of my head, just theoretically. Um, and we start going to the realm of why not invest in that point in technologies that are closer to main video, uh, virtual video memory or main memory. So we have like Intel Optane. There's also Sony's. Sony had something. I think they made in this direction. It was called like ReRAM or something like that. Is that maybe that's Toshiba? I forget. Um, but you know, there's other technologies that are basically smaller uh, uh containers, uh, you know, like thirty-two or sixty-four gigabytes, but they're closer to main memory, and so you're not wasting cycles and they're latency efficient in a way that is more usable uh than maybe these one million uh 4K IOPs. Um but that's my answer to this. Uh I don't know. Do you guys have
0: anything? Well, you know, when I was speaking to Mark Cerny about this, he was describing scenarios where, you know, let's say you've got, you know, 16 milliseconds or 33 milliseconds per frame. You know he was talking about requesting information at the beginning of the of the frame generation process and uh, you would have that by the next frame that's going to be generated so you know this is kind of like i think an example of how these ssds are being uh, engineered not for the games of the here and now but to give developers legroom uh for you know uh, the the games to come, right? I think the bottom line is that you, you know, despite the various uh, videos that have come out, it's highly unlikely that Ratchet and Clank, in the state that it is, you know, in the way it was developed at this point, I don't think it would run on a hard drive. Uh, you'd have to specifically engineer for the hard drive rather than just taking advantage of the inherent advantages of the uh, of the SSDs. But it's early days for accessing those SSDs and getting the getting the most out of them. I think there's
1: actually some of the confusion because there was that video out recently about suppose you know debunking uh, the SSD requirement, right? And I think I don't think he's saying that Ratchet and Clank itself would run on it on as it is on a hard drive. It's more that the techniques they employ there can be employed uh, in other ways and still function on that kind of hardware you know it's it's more about scaling the assets up right it's like you have to work with what you have in terms of overall bandwidth it's like okay you know ps2 era game they can they were able to do stuff like that in real time and they instantly switch between areas but the size of the assets and how much memory you were filling
0: was so much smaller it's a completely different thing right okay let's move on to the next question this one's for you alex i reckon from lee yarker he talks a lot about DLSS in his questions. Thanks, Lee. He's got another DLSS question. I love it <laughs> Don't we all? Uh, can the AI tech used in DLSS and DLAA be transferred to other graphical improvements, say textures, global illuminations, uh, or particle effects, etc.? cetera? Yes. Um, so as an example of that,
2: you can just think of anything that has a really complex texture surface where storing that that surface, that representation of the surface, becomes stupid. You know, just like there's no really good way to store that. For example, like a fuzzy ball, uh, and it's actually like real three d fuzz, not just like you know, uh, like two d textures aligned to a plane all over the thing. Like actually, like the real three dness of that fuzz, um there's really no good way to store that in a way that can move around a game world very easily. Okay, that's what machine learning can do. It can say, like, I can approximate the look of that in real time for you. And, you know, NVIDIA has shown this in research already for things like this. Global illumination, there's probably a lot of ways that it could be used uh, for that. But the most recent one uh, that NVIDIA also showed off was essentially, instead of having um, real rays shot around the environment, it would use previous rays from previous frames, or even some rays generated in the new frame, to estimate essentially the other paths that that ray would have taken in that frame if it kept on going. And it does a really really good job of it. It starts approximating uh, like higher um, uh, rays per pixels you know, like orders of magnitude in terms of quality. That's really good. Um, And for uh, textures, in real time, this one's a hard one. I'm not sure about textures, but offline it's been done in the past uh, where you know uh games have used uh i think john even saw it in recently or at least presumed it was that way in uh skyward sword right uh you presumed that they might have used it for a couple of the environmental textures there
1: that was kind of the assumption because the the art lined up so perfectly but the actual texel size was different between them uh, in a way that made it it had that that characteristic look of ai upscaled imagery Uh, but it did work really well in that case
2: But that was offline. So uh, in terms of real-time, it's hard. I I can't say for textures in real-time. Maybe it's something like Paint Flex in a texture could be done with machine learning.
1: I'm not sure it's necessary to apply machine learning to that in real-time when there's so many other applications where it is useful.
2: I think that's about all I can say about that. There's just so much more research coming out about this all the time now. I think it's just going to keep accelerating and we're going to see more novel things over the next two years, probably. Uh,
0: Well, let's move on to a new question by Dem still. And uh, it's kind of workflow related, really. Hey, DFT, he says, did you consider moving the filming of the DF direct uh, to Friday and adjusting dates accordingly? We typically film on Thursday morning. Filming on Thursday means me missing a lot of important weekly news that had to be covered on next week's direct, while filming on Friday, from what I noticed on recent months, would not miss anything major. Thursday had a lot of news and even showcases that you missed for the week. So wondering if you considered the move. Well, we've certainly considered it and we've actually done it in one or two scenarios. But, uh,
1: John? Uh, I mean, fundamentally, it's just somebody has to edit the show, right? Uh, and that <laughs> that's somebody's <laughs> audi. So this um, is essentially so that, you know, we don't want to have to make him work every weekend or something on on editing the show, right? right? Like, realistically, that's not... It's not a fair thing to do to somebody i feel uh and it's not exactly easy to get this done just on like the afternoon because with the time we're finished it's like after lunch and then you know it's uh it's not great and beyond that it's not just filming it we also have to each uh, encode our final videos into a smaller format then we have to upload it send them the link then he has to download everything and then find all the assets to go with it sometimes we have to send those assets I mean it wouldn't really start full edit necessarily until like saturday morning so that's that's kind of the thing so i guess what we've done in the past is sometimes is essentially patch in uh extra news bits when appropriate something big happens we just gather again and film another
0: another segment and try to through the magic of editing kind of slam it in there i mean that's something that we have done which is uh, i think last week due to um scheduling issues and availability, you actually did film on Friday, other times we have um basically shot the bulk of it on Thursday and then carefully rearranged our desks <laughs> on Friday to make it look as though we're filming on Thursday, but we're actually doing a pickup section to that could be more easily slotted in um but yeah, fundamentally the reason why we film on Thursday is uh to do the best that we can to guarantee that uh Patreon supporters get. Uh, early access to the direct on Saturday, um, and that wouldn't really be possible otherwise. Um, that's kind of about it. And uh, let's move on to the next question. Uh, it's from um, somebody who's got possibly the the best username, Mister Bespoke.
2: <laughs>
0: it's yeah. good. I like this guy. I like him already. What's the <laughs> What's the biggest technical issue or issues you have ever faced? when trying to create content for Digital Foundry or DF Retro? Uh, Alex, this might be an interesting one for you. Uh, Back in the day, it definitely has to be
2: um, unexplainable uh, uh, tearing uh, on consoles, PlayStation consoles, and being unable to capture it well uh, in your recording. So you do your recording. Back in the day, this is before we had um you know the new tool necessarily and you'd look at it and it'd be like 60 fps with tearing or something like that and it's maybe not catching it all and you're like oh no you know like this kind of thing that means for that this is a technical hurdle where you have to look at uh you know talking back and forth to the team examine the footage itself to see if grains coming in in some way on like a really fine level and then you have to keep constantly testing the game in area where you know it will be um, tearing, and then you have to make sure it's getting caught. Um, This is really just, like, really annoying work. There's no joy to be had in any of this. Um, And... uh, joy. It is is like, we don't have this issue as often anymore, thankfully. And for a while now, also thankfully, Xbox games for some reason preferred to have 60 FPS tearing, and PlayStation 1's didn't. I think it just recently just happened in Call of Duty Vanguard, actually. Um, So, uh, you know, this is another thing where... I don't know what it is, but when when just the basic thing you want to do for your game, the recording is not working well, it throws the entire project uh, off. And I've usually had it with a 60fps tearing issue.
0: I mean, I don't know where to begin with this one. I guess, first of all, if we go all the way back to, I guess, 2007, 2008, just the whole concept of visualizing frame rate in a video uh, was a challenge. And uh, it's a challenge that we kind of rose to and gradually started to understand how frame rate analysis, well, basically how frames are, are presented. That was basically the foundation work. Now, in theory, it's all really straightforward because, you know, assuming there's a game running with Vsync, it is literally a case of seeing how many times the same frame is duplicated and then averaging it out over 60 frames. That's it. That's in the on the face of it. That is inc- incredibly simple right um but then we have stuff like adaptive uh sync uh screen tearing as 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 it manifests on on screen which uh causes a lot of issues and uh, alex is right when you're seeing screen tearing at 60 frames per second um you know at the very basic level if the tear is moving down the game is running slower than 16.7 Uh, milliseconds or rather higher than 16.7 so the frame rate is lower if but if the tear is going up it's actually really difficult to um, see you know to to track that tear because the the game is actually running faster than 60 frames per second the frame times are lower than 16.7 so yes that does present problems Um, But I do potentially have a solution to that, which I might talk to you about uh, uh, later. Unfortunately, it's not something we can do on uh, ourselves. But um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the big technological issue, the whole concept of actually visualizing performance, which is uh, a foundation of what we do. Um, I guess the latest um, issue would be the whole move to 4K, right? uh because typically the workflow was to mathematically well basically bring in the output of the hdmi port onto your pc in a mathematically lossless format it's not really too much of an issue at 720p um but there is an issue uh when you move to 1080p um it was just about containable at that point um however when you get to 4k and you're still using mathematically lossless codecs, uh, you're looking at like at the minimum between 100 and about 100 to about 200. Actually, I've seen it about 300. So 100 to 300 megabytes of data per second. And it's just not viable. You know, it's just totally nuts. So you've got two options there. You basically downscale to 1080p and carry on as normal. Or you want to retain 4K and um, you use lossy compression. And, you know, what we did was to basically uh, relocate the frame rate detection process from after recording video to before compressing it. And that was how we overcame that issue. There are so many other sort of uh, technological issues we've had to overcome. Um, This question's kind of taken me a bit by surprise, but those are the ones that, that spring to mind. Uh, the DF Retro side of things, though, John, that's an interesting one, right, from Mr. Bespoke? I mean, you covered kind of the main issues that we've covered, of course. I still have nightmares
1: of that Shadow Warrior video on PS4 back in the day where it was like going through every single frame and manually inserting torn frames due to the way they did VSync. It took me like an entire day. It was uh, not fun. But on the Retro side, you know, usually almost everything that that... It's not too bad on the retro side now like for a while it was issues with getting the scalers to interface correctly with the capture cards in a way that was actually convenient and easy um i like to use the Atomos projects products for instance and until like say the retro tink 5x pro uh, nothing worked with it so because they sent out non-standard video signals so that was a little bit of a pain um and then you know it's just I find that anything capture related, like when th- when it just doesn't work for some reason, even though it always does normally work and you just fire something up, you're not getting a signal. It's always somewhere in the chain. Something is off. You don't know why. And it's just troubleshooting the entire chain of video along the way to figure out like why something stopped working and why are you getting noise or an issue along the way. That's frustrating. But beyond that, I think you know this another thing that you guys didn't mention is just uh when you have pc issues specifically like with like premiere for instance like sometimes certain projects just act up they just crash like crazy or you're you're getting issues with exporting and uh or something's just not importing correctly and there's all those types of things that can pop up from time to time and Nothing makes you want to bang your head on the desk more than that kind of thing, especially when you lose progress. You know, it's like, uh, usually the autosave works. Sometimes it doesn't work. (laughs)
0: And so you're always, I'm always
1: trying to remember to hit Control-S,
0: Control-S. Yeah, I'm doing it
1: constantly. And so
0: I think the other thing is basically just the move to 4K in general uh, has, in the editing and production side, it slows things down dramatically far more than the 4X increase in pixels versus 1080p. So, you know, just the process of editing 4K is slower, much slower. Exporting your video, encoding your video, it's much, much slower than um, than 1080p. Everything takes and so much time with 4K, oh, yeah. comparatively. Absolutely. I think that pretty much comprehensively addresses that one from Mr. Bespoke. Um, <laughs> it was Bespoke. Now, <laughs> i hope you enjoyed the bespoke answer mm-hmm. um okay so let's move on to the final question now i have been accused in the past of carefully uh curating questions to bait my fellow panel members and yes i've done it again um <laughs> this one is from uh somatic mm-hmm. afternoon gentlemen he says yes <laughs> This afternoon. Um, <laughs> are we as gamers currently placing too much <laughs> to the altar of ray tracing? I sometimes struggle to tell the difference between it and other less expensive methods in quite a few games. And when do you think the tipping point will be breached to be able to fully utilize RT with current console hardware? So, you know, I did float this question earlier and I could see the fury rising within Alex Patalia. So Alex, why don't you tackle this one?
2: I would say no, we aren't. Um, I mean, yes, it always requires context um, as to what's being done. Uh, You don't just want to say the word ray tracing for the purpose of it and then look at the game like Godfall and uh, have an absolutely useless ray tracing implementation. Um, you actually want it to be affecting the main core visuals of the game in some way or improving the experience in some way uh, as an option, as an option, not necessarily always forced. Uh, That's where I think the difference lies in uh, a game being designed around this in the first place. And, you know... We saw it with Metro Exodus Enhanced Edition. I think we recently also saw it with Deathloop, uh, but it's just less obvious there, where the first level of the game was quite obviously designed with Race Race Shadows in mind, uh, which is very interesting. Um, and, you know, there it has a really meaningful effect. And we're in this transition period when games will uh, be using it in a way that's a little bit more of an afterthought. And there, I'll agree with you, you'll have sometimes trouble seeing it in certain scenes uh, because, you know, not every scene is going to benefit in the exact same way as others. Different views look different for reasons. Um, but when we reach that point where games are starting to do it as the base default way they do things, and it's already starting to happen, it's going to be happening more and more, then you'll be noticing bigger returns, and it also cost less because they'll be taking it into account in the initial planning areas of the game. Um, so, I will say, no, we aren't. We should keep praying on this altar, offering up as much as we can uh, until it is uh, standardized to the point where it's in every game out there always. Uh, and I think it's something great to demand of games that are coming out that are you know saying they're going to have high-end visuals to a certain degree. It's like, you know, actually you know there's limits to rasterization. there's probably ways to do it with ray tracing that are better looking. Uh, And last part of this question, last part, uh, when do we think we'll reach this ability to fully less current console hardware? Well, we're not going to be seeing a lot of path trace stuff on current console hardware, unfortunately, uh, yet, maybe at the end of the generation, we'll be surprised, but, um, I think we're going to see it in super meaningful way in about two to three years where every AAA game that comes out will essentially have it no matter what. That's kind of where we're going
1: yeah isn't minecraft uh rtx or the, the minecraft thing that's path traced isn't it for sure it is yeah. but we haven't seen it we beyond the demo that's, that's what i'm saying the very first thing we ever saw running on a series <laughs> yeah. x was actually a path trace demo <laughs> and we still haven't seen <laughs> it for no reason For no <laughs> and reason now it's not, but alex i wanted to add one more thing f- for this gentleman uh and why the altar of ray tracing is so important to be worshiping at Uh, It's not just about us. It's also about the people making the games because uh, doing all those rasterization tricks takes a lot of extra time and effort to essentially fake the viewer and just moving the workflow to a fully ray-traced solution uh, I also think makes life easier for artists and people actually working on the game. And I think that is another
0: very important reason why we need to be moving in that direction. Yeah, I'm just thinking of uh, Ratchet & Clank, actually, um, where I don't think the game looks... As good without ray tracing, but the option is there. But you know, if you think about it, you've got a 60fps performance mode with a higher resolution than the performance RT mode. But I'm just not interested in the performance mode anymore. You know, I am in, I am interested in performance RT. I am interested in the 40 FPS lock uh fidelity mode on 120 hertz screens. Uh it seems to me that developers are doing a really good job, first of all, of integrating ray tracing when they're specifically addressing it as a as a serious design target and secondly you know you, you're getting a really good experience from it you know and you're getting something that you aren't getting with pure rasterization so yeah i mean you know to go back to the question i'm just loving this image <laughs> of placing too much at the altar of ray tracing it's kind of like you know some kind of uh, demonic ritual yeah. <laughs> we're sort of instigating here i'm sort of getting vibes of <laughs> from indiana jones and
1: <laughs>
0: yeah hearts <laughs> yeah um but yeah fundamentally it's about balance right and also about what the developers want to get out of the new generation of games we've already seen it with 4a games where they're saying right okay Ray tracing works for us we think it works for the users we can do it at 60 frames per second let's do it so um you know ultimately it's going to be the developers that uh, that that make the choices here and um let's just see how uh, rate tracing develops across the generation i do think uh, one thing that is slightly problematic is series s um because for whatever reason, whether it's memory, whether it's GPU horsepower, we're seeing titles that don't have ray tracing modes that are available elsewhere. And um, we saw with Metro Exodus that um, they did get ray tracing running on it, um, but it came at the expense of, you know, at its worst, a really big drop to resolution. So, and also, that there's also similar things with 120 hertz there, um, where the the Series S is He's capable of doing it, but he's doing it at uh, a much lower resolution than you'd kind of like. But you know, ultimately, you know, it's watch this space. Really, there's already been some amazing stuff, Um, so I can't wait to see more.
2: I also worship the altar of ray tracing. It makes colors look much better than in (laughs) GT
0: (laughs) Seven. Well, I don't know about anybody else, but I'm convinced. I'm also convinced. Okay, well, look, let's wrap this up. Uh, really good show. Thanks for joining me on this one. And if you enjoyed the show and you'd like to see it early, join the DF Supporter Program. Uh, and uh, just generally, um, like, subscribe, share. If you enjoyed the content, ring the bell for instant notifications, notionally instant con- uh, notifications, Jeez. of course. An instant. And uh, I did, yeah. You know, what can I say? Um, but yes, beyond that, Just thanks for watching and supporting Digital Foundry.